Good morning. Good morning. Morning, morning. 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 Oh, isn't it good to sing praises to Christ? Isn't it? Isn't it? Oh, I need that stronghold. Don't you? Don't you? Uh, everybody puts up a, a face of strength and uh, a facade that they have all things figured out. And underneath it all, underneath it all, we are frail humans that need a Savior. We're frail humans that need a God. Well, uh, we're going to take a break from the book of Ephesians today. And we're going to contemplate um, uh, our communion Sunday. I like to do a study, if I can on the implications of the cross, the implications of the gospel. Um, um, before I forget, because I probably will, I wanted to invite all of you here. I see some new faces, some faces have come back. Hi there, I'm Angelo. Nice to meet you. What's your name? Phil, and, and what's your name? Kayleen, nice to meet you. Glad you're here. You have a, your own brood there, so I'm glad you're here. But I'd like to invite you guys, if you're all free, uh, we've got a potluck after communion. Uh, we like to do that, to share a meal. Um, turn with me to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. We're going to be contemplating freedom from guilt. Freedom from guilt. The theme of the Bible is redemption in Christ Jesus. That man is a, is a sinner, is in need of forgiveness. But what Christ has accomplished on the cross and what Christ has done, he has freed us from the penalty of sin. He has freed us from guilt. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. I remember um, when I was in college, there was a brother who confessed that he was sleeping with his girlfriend. He was fornicating. He'd just broken up with her, and he was depressed for a few days. He was kind of messed up. And the guilt that was from that sin just took over. He stopped fellowshipping. He stopped going to church. He didn't want to talk to other Christians. He didn't crack open his Bible. And then I finally tracked him down. And I talked to him. And he looked at me and he said, how can I, how can I face God again? I can't go to church. I don't even want to open my Bible. I have no business reading it. Have you ever been there? You're happy in Christ. You know who Christ is. He saved you from your sins, and you sin heinously against him. Have you ever been there? Well, in Hebrews chapter 4, this is a promise for believers uh, if you would go with me to the text, we're going to concentrate on chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Verse 14, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence. You see that word? That's amazing. With confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy 
and find grace to help in time of need. God gave this passage to you this morning, I believe. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ and he is your Savior and you claim the name of Christ as your only Lord and Savior, God gave this passage to you this morning so that you would stop wallowing in your guilt. Because of the cross work of Christ, because of what he has done as your high priest, because he has gone into the heavens, God does not want you to live a life wallowing in your guilt. If you have sinned, you confess, you repent, and you move on. And you live in liberty. You don't take that liberty and live uh, and sin any way you want. In fact, the one who knows their freedom in Christ desires and desires to live holy and righteous because they're freed from the guilt of sin. But sometimes you could get caught here. Maybe you're here. Maybe you come this morning. I don't know. I don't, I don't know your hearts. I don't know what you've done, what you've thought, what you've said. Maybe you're a believer today and you come in and, and you just forced yourself to get here. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Because here, now, you can hear the word of God and be reminded you have to be, the Bible says, nourished on grace. You gotta be. You have to be nourished in the gospel. Nourished on grace. Because if you look in the mirror and the reality of who you are, the law of the Lord will tell you you're a sinner. And so you need that grace and you need it today. If this, is for, if this is a foreign language to you, you've never heard this before, just stick with me. This is sweet news. Stop wallowing in your guilt. I have three reasons, three fantastic, unbelievable, almost out-of-this-world reasons why you should stop wallowing in your guilt. God doesn't want you to live that way. Number one, stop wallowing in your guilt because Jesus intercedes for you. Stop wallowing in your guilt because Jesus intercedes for you. Verse 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And here, the whole heart of this sentence, it says here, it really is, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast our confession. This is for believers in Christ. This is not a promise to live guilt-free. This is not a promise for those who are outside of Christ. The confession strictly means, confession is, uh, in the Greek, it means homologeo, which means to say the same thing. You agree, you acknowledge exactly what uh, is said about Christ, of his work, of what he's done. It says here to hold fast to that confession. The word therefore hold fast means to take into one's possession or custody. Sometimes it was used in the New Testament for the word for arrest. So Jesus, when Jesus was arrested, they would use this word to hold fast to it. To take hold or to grasp or to seize. If you remember in the unforgiving servant, he owed the king 10,000 denarii. And the king forgave him. You remember the story that Jesus said. But when the, another servant owed him 100 denarii, he put him in jail. Right? Uh, the king 
began to, I mean, excuse me, the servant seized the other servant and chokeholded him, choked him. That's the word there, to hold fast to this confession. And then the confession, what we said, is uh, to acknowledge the same thing of what who he is. Well, what is this confession? Hebrews talks about what this confession is. What are we saying about this Christ? What do we believe about this Christ? What are you to hold on with a stubborn chokehold about this Christ? Well, first, he is mediator. Notice, it says there, since then we have a great high priest. And then if you look down, very clearly it is Jesus, son of God. Jesus, son of God. In, um, if you notice in verse, chapter four, verse, uh, excuse me, chapter three, verse one, he says the same thing about Christ in chapter three, verse one. He says, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, Consider Jesus, the apostle, the sent one, right? Jesus was also sent on a mission, right? And high priest of what? Of our confession. Okay. What is the high priest? Well, the high priest, once a year, we knew this from even Leviticus chapter 16. The high priest would go uh, uh, during Yom Kippur. If you guys have never been to... We just, last week, my wife and I, we went to, we took the kids out to Santee. And there's this, uh, this guy, he just created this uh, museum of creation science. If you've ever been there, I think it was pretty cool. Uh, we went through all, uh, all of the, uh, um, all of the whole exhibit. And then he had this one show about the tabernacle. And I thought it was interesting. If you ever get a chance, I would go the first Tuesday of each month because it's free. And all of you guys got a lot of kids, okay? But, um, so, but what's wonderful is you get a, get a chance to visualize what the high priest did. And once a year on, uh, on Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, the high priest would put on his vest, and the vest would have this, uh, 12 stones, which would represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And he would put on his garments, and they would, uh, tradition says they would tie a rope around his ankle, and they would have bells on the bottom of his garments there. And what he would go is he would come from the outer court where the sacrifice was made. And he would take the blood and pass through from the outer court. He would pass through into the first room, which would be the holy place. And then from the holy room, he would pass through into another room, which is called the holy of holies. And there... That would be the only place right here. It was, there, was a, there was the Ark of the Covenant, and he would sprinkle in the seat. He would sprinkle blood. And that would represent, uh, that would represent a sacrifice for the people for their sins. It would be uh, a representation of the atoning that God would promise to bring in Christ Jesus later on. And so what, the, what in uh, Hebrews chapter 4 Verse 14, Jesus takes on, and he is, and you'll look all through the, the book of Hebrews, he is the better high priest. What happened with the high priest back then for Israel is this high priest, he had to make first sacrifices for himself. Why? Because he himself was a sinner. 
And then he had to do this year after year after year after year after year because the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. It was merely a picture of what Christ would do in the future. And what, oh, what, uh, the, what the writer of the Hebrews is saying is, Jesus now is your high priest. And he's not like the high priest of the past who needed to do sacrifices for himself because he was sinless. He was a high priest. Uh, he was the better high priest. Why? Because now he offers not a lamb, not a goat. He offers himself. Man, him, man is at, ra, is in a, he, there is a great gulf between man and God. And, and Jesus Christ came and bled on the cross. And his blood creates the bridge for us to have access to God. Now, as, as we look upon that, Jesus is your high priest. You notice here, who has passed through the heavens. And now, what uh, the writer of Hebrews is saying is, he's using the term heavens to get the mind of the readers. You have to remember, the readers of the book of Hebrews was mostly Jewish. And as they read the book, they were remembering exactly what, uh, what was uh, told about the high priest. If you recall, the high priest would go through the first room and then he would go through the second room, past the veil, past the curtain. This curtain was, they would say, it's about a handbreadth wide. Very thick curtain because it was supposed to be a separation between God and man. But the high priest in Leviticus would go right through. And now he takes that language and he says, well, Jesus does the same thing, but he doesn't go through a tent. He doesn't go through a tabernacle. And the way the Jewish mind thought about heavens at that time was, here there were, they believed that there were three heavens. Okay? This would be the first heaven. Okay? This is, our atmosphere would be the first heaven. And then space or the celestial bodies would be, uh, and where the stars are and the planets are, that would be the second heaven. And then the third heaven will be the place where God himself Wells. And what the Bible says is Jesus acted as our priest. He didn't go through a curtain made with hands. He didn't go through simply uh, one room to another room that was built out in the wilderness. He went through the first heaven, the second heaven, and then to the third heaven where God himself dwells. And when he pled his case, brother and sister, in Christ, you were declared righteous. He did that for you. And he did that for me. He passed through the heavens. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. He expands on this theme in Hebrews chapter 10. I wanted to read that. In Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll work and start in verse 19, and we'll work our way down to 23. He says, therefore, brethren, since we have, he uses the same term, we have confidence to enter the holy place, and he's using that language. He's saying, now, 
believer, you can enter. How? By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil. He uses that language again. Jesus gives us access because he went through first, right? That is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And then he says, verse 23, the same thing. What does he say? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So, to bring it in a nutshell, to bring it all together, when the writer of Hebrews says to hold fast the confession, the confession here is simply the belief and agreement that man is sinful before a holy God. Christ came to die for your sins, and now you are completely reconciled with him if you have faith in him. In other words, you are completely and utterly reconciled with God through the sacrifice of Christ. So to hold fast that confession means if you are a believer, the evidence of your faith is that you tenaciously and unwaveringly hold on to the fact that you are right with God because Jesus died for you. You will be stubborn and steadfast and immovable and unshakable and settled. This is the very bedrock of your faith. True believers hold on to this confession with a death grip. That's all I got. That is all I have. What Christ has done for me. Are you really going to go before the God of heaven and say, well, God, you should let me in because you know what? I'm not as bad as someone else. Are you really going to do that? Because if you look in the mirror and you look at the word of God, as it says, it condemns you. But if I look at the word and trust in the Christ, I know I'm forgiven. Oh, Christian, that is yours. That is yours. If you are a true believer, let this gospel truth free you. Stop wallowing. In your guilt. Stop it. Confess, yeah. Repent, don't live that way anymore. But stop wallowing in your guilt. Because Jesus intercedes for you. Secondly, stop wallowing in your guilt. Because Jesus understands you. Stop wallowing in your guilt because Jesus understands. You notice in verse 15 as we move on of Hebrews chapter 4. Let me go back there. I think this is incredible. I think this is absolutely incredible. He says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. To sympathize means to show a disposition to help because of a fellow feeling, to be compassionate towards, to share 
in the sufferings. Before, in the Hebrew mind, in the Jewish mind, God was distant, unable to feel human emotions. And now the writer of Hebrew says, no, because God is the God-man, because God put on flesh, because Jesus Christ walks among us, right? He walked among us. He is able to sympathize with us. Now, I remember when I, I had a friend, I think I shared this before, but I had a friend who lost his mom. And when he buried his mom, I wrote a card. I tried to encourage him. I tried to pray for him and I did my best, but I really couldn't sympathize. I didn't know what he was going through. You know what I mean? I, I, I really tried to be there, but I really didn't sympathize. Why? Because I didn't go through it. And then when my mom died and I buried her, all of a sudden, I could really sympathize with other people now. Why? Because I know exactly what the person went through. And what's amazing, follow this thought, okay? What is amazing is that the great God of the universe, who absolutely needs nothing, who absolutely requires nothing, is completely full in him and of himself, came down in the form of man and suffered and died, yes, but before all that, endured temptation so that he can feel, I can use that term, right, what it means to be a human. The frustrations, the disappointments, the brokenheartedness, I think that's utterly amazing. And for me to understand that this person, this God who I pray to, this Jesus Christ, is not only simply someone who grants forgiveness, someone who died on the cross, but he knows what I went through. Amen? Now, what do you mean sympathize? Well, it says to sympathize with our weakness. That word means a want of strength, our feebleness, our sickliness. Sometimes the word is used for a disease. It's to describe the human condition being tempted, right? I remember um, I was talking with my kids last night, and we were talking about how you are redeemed, you are forgiven, you are regenerated, your life has changed, but there is still a remnant in sin of sin. Okay. I think that's attested to in Romans chapter 7, where Paul himself says, and the good that I wish I want to do, I don't do. Right? And he hates that. And we were all talking about, I hate, I hate my sin. I hate my sin. We hate our sin. Don't you hate your sin? I hate my sin. Jesus did not sin, but he understands that temptation. Notice he says here, one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. That is the all things is stresses the variety, the frustration, 
the stress, the disappointment. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. In verse 17, verse 17 says, Therefore, he had to, notice it says there, he had to be made like us, like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he also is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. In order for you to be redeemed, there had to be someone who went through all of it and did not sin. There had to be someone who would fulfill the law perfectly and not fail at any point. And that was Jesus Christ himself. But when he came to earth, he had to be completely human like us. Right? Completely human. Now, the Bible says that Jesus came, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things. And then it says, yet without sin. Now, some people might say this, okay? As, I'm, as we are reading this text, sometimes we say, well, what does that mean? Is, uh, does it mean that Jesus was tempted? Does that mean that he sinned? How can that mean he didn't sin? Well, temptation is not sin, just to make, just to make that clear. It even says it in the sentences here. He says, he was tempted yet without sin. But notice, even in James 1.13, I'll just read that to you. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. He himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Let me take you there. Go to Hebrews, I mean, James chapter 1. I got to take you there. James chapter 1. To make the point first that temptation in and of itself is not sin. We have to understand that first to understand what Christ endured. And we have to understand that even in our battle with sin itself. Temptation in itself is not sin. Notice in James chapter 1, he says, and in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. So God doesn't tempt anyone. He himself does not tempt anyone. Verse 14, each one is what? Where does it come from? Is tempted when he is what? Carried away and enticed by his own lusts. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth to death. So what happens here? This is exactly what Satan was doing to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus, he was appealing to Jesus' flesh. That is his human nature. As what he was doing is he was saying, do you want to be king over all the realms? Do you want to make the stones into bread? Do you want to do this? And what was Jesus' response? It is written. It is written. It is written. So he fought temptation with God's word by the Spirit. But you notice, uh, let's ask another question if we go back to Hebrews chapter 4. So is temptation sin itself? No. Temptation itself is not sin. 
giving into it, linking your own thoughts and desires with it, yes, that becomes sin. So say, for instance, driving on the five, going to Ponto Beach because I'm ready to go out in the water, right? And I'm driving and some dude just cuts me off and I'm tempted, right? I'm tempted to do whatever, right? Go back, go back over them and call them nice names, right? But if I have, if I'm tempted and I give it to God and I say, God, I don't want to act out in anger. I don't want to act out in an outburst of anger. I want to trust in you. That is not sin. But if I give into it and I say, boom, 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 and I run him off the road, then it's, it's sin. So Jesus felt the full weight of the temptation, but he never gave in. What's amazing. He never, could Jesus have sinned? That's our next question, right? You got to think about that. Could Jesus have sinned? No. The answer is no. In his humanity, he relied on the power of the Spirit and Scripture to defeat sin. We know that from the temptation in the wilderness, it is written. But in his deity, he could not sin. Did you know that there are some things that God can't do? Did you know that? That's impossible. A lot of people say God could do anything. No, there's some things that God cannot do. In Titus chapter 1, verse 2, uh, I'll just read you, read you it, uh, the verse. It says, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie. You got to read the text, right? Promised long ages ago. In other words, there are things that God himself cannot do. And what is that? He cannot go against his holy character. He will not sin against his holy character. And God himself would not sin. So, no, Jesus would not have sinned. Then here's the next question, okay? If he would not have sinned, then was Jesus' temptation real, right? Isn't that the question? Is it real? If he, te- if he was tempted and he felt it, is it real? And the answer is, the, the scriptural record is, yes. Sin nature is not required to sense a real temptation. Jesus in his full humanity felt and sensed temptation in a very real way. In fact, Jesus' felt temptations were stronger and more poignant than you will ever feel. See, typically, when you and I are tempted... If you do not yield to the Spirit and Scripture, what happens? You give in, right? So here's the temptation, right? You start out, you are tempted, and then you give in, right? It's not the pattern we'd like, but sadly, if you're not in God's Word, if you're not yielding to God's Spirit, if you're not fellowshipping regularly with His people, that's where you'll be. But it's different with Jesus. Now follow this, okay? He is tempted and he never gives in. The temptation increases and he doesn't give in. It continues and it continues and he doesn't give in. See, you've never seen temptation like Christ. Right? 
you're tempted. Perhaps you shouldn't be, perhaps you t uh, you're uh, struggling with gluttony and you see a chocolate cake in the back that Manny bought. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, Manny. <laughs> right? And you know you shouldn't, you should put down that fifth piece of cake. Okay? But then you see it, bam, you eat it, right? Maybe, maybe you're at a friend's house, you've had three pieces of cake and you're sitting there. I'm not going to tell you how many pieces of cake to eat, okay? That's between you and God, all right? There's no Bible verse. I'm not going to say that, and I'm not going to be the cake police, okay? What, I, what I'm saying is this, okay? You're sitting there, and you're trying to practice self-control, but you're hovering like a vulture. Hovering, 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 okay? And uh, what happens is this, right? 20 minutes has passed. 30 minutes has passed. You, you take a piece of cake. And then you hover some more, and then 20 minutes, 30 minutes. You really, really try and hold out, and then an hour, you take another piece of cake. We don't face the reality, the sharpness, the intensity of the temptation like Christ. He drank the temptation full never sinned, completely holy, completely righteous for you and for me. In fact, the temptation was so great. The intensity of his temptation is unlike any you will ever see, for he never gave in. Let me take you to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. And we know this. This is the Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means, has the apt name. It really means olive press. This is in fact where the Son of God was pressed. And he says here, you remember, he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. Jesus knows full well, he knows full well the plan of the Father for him. That is, he would be separate from him. Okay. During the time that he absorbed the wrath of God for you and for me. And he says to the disciples, pray that you may not enter in temptation. Now, again, they, don't, they just fall into sin, right? They fall asleep. But you notice here, he says, and he withdrew from them a stone thrown away. And he knelt down and he began to pray. Now, Jesus is being tempted. Okay, follow it. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Correct? In his human nature, he's saying, I want the easy way out. This is terrible. And what was terrible? Was it the Romans? No. Was it the Jews that would crucify him? No. It wasn't any of that. Was it the beatings? Was it the spittings? No. Is that he would be separate from his father. He would be denied that access, that free relationship that he had with his father. And he didn't want to endure that. He didn't want to endure that. He knew it was for the glory of God. He knew it was for his own glory. He knew that it would be for the purchase of his people and the forgiveness of their guilt forever and ever. And he said, if there is another way, 
If there's another way, I want it. What did he say? He says, but not, not my will, but yours be done. Oh, the resolve of your Christ to endure the greatest of temptations and not succumb. Does that make you say hallelujah? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now, follow along. I want you to see the stress that the Son of Man had. He says, now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. But notice the stress of the temptation on him. The stress and the pressing of the Son of Man. It says here, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And many scholars, including myself, I'm not a scholar, but... Many uh, theologians believe that this is a, an example of what uh, there's a medical term called uh, hematidrosis or hemodrosis or blood sweat. It's actually a medical term where blood would ooze from the forehead, nails, and other skin surfaces, even sometimes out of the eyes. Okay. And uh, the doctors believe that this can be caused by extreme stress and anxiety. Brothers and sisters, Jesus felt every drop of temptation for you and for me. He is an understanding God. There is no sin that you could tell him that he'd be surprised about. He's not going to say, what? How? Huh? How could you do that? I never heard of that. Oh, he has felt it in full measure without sin. Amen? Amen? I mean, when was the last time you fought that hard for holiness? Right? Look at Hebrews chapter 12. I'll just read that to you. No, go there. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And he compares. He compares the believer. Right? Hebrews chapter 12. In verse 3, right, we remember in chapter 12, it is the hall of faith. He starts talking about all those who have gone before us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3 says, For consider him, what? Who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary. Where do I want to go? Uh, verse 4. You, what does it say? Have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. You've never been there. You understand? You've never suffered like Christ has suffered. He went farther than you, so he can tell you he understands. Don't tell him he doesn't know what you're going through. He's not that kind of God. You can't, you know, when people say, well, I know what you're going through, pat, pat, walks by. Okay. Oh, that's good. That's a, you know, kind of like a courteous pat, pat on the shoulder and you're crying your eyes out, right? He's not like that. He understands fully 
Go to him, Christian. He understands it all. You think you've sinned so much that he says, I can't stand you? Get out of my face? Jesus says, never, never, never. Surely if he can have compassion on the sinner, you can as well. So stop wallowing in your guilt because Jesus understands you. Next, stop wallowing in your guilt because Jesus welcomes you. Ah, that's sweet, right? Stop wallowing in your guilt because Jesus welcomes you. Notice he says here, let us therefore draw near with confidence. And now he says the word therefore. In a, whenever you do a Bible study and you see the word therefore, you always got to look what it's there for, right? Therefore, because Jesus intercedes for you, because Jesus understands you, draw near. And what's, what's amazing is I know what I've done before God. Notice he says, God says this in verse 12 of the same chapter. He says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul of, and spirit and of joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Verse 13. There is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The Bible says we're like a fish that has been filleted. That is the open and laying bare. And that every thought, he says here, every thought and intention of the heart, not just the sins you do by word, not just the sins you do by actions, but every minuscule thought and the giving up of yourself, of your lust over to that sin. The sins that you don't think anyone sees, God sees perfectly clear. And because he was my high priest, because he paid for it all, even those thoughts, those filthy thoughts of anger, bitterness, and lust, those filthy thoughts of jealousy and envy and corruption, those evil thoughts, even all of that, he says, because of I was your priest, you are welcome. This is why I love communion. We remember what he's done. And we could commune with him. Let us draw near means to come, to go to, to approach. And then the word with confidence means boldness, courage, fearlessness. It's interesting. Okay? If you remember, even in the book of Esther, if we remember the book of Esther, Esther couldn't even go into the king's chambers, right? Because why? She would be killed unless he, what, raised his scepter. You cannot go before the presence of the king, correct? And that's why Esther, it was a, 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 an incredible show of faith in God when she said, if I perish, I perish, right? I'm going to do it because I have to save my people. If I perish, I perish. You remember in Mount Sinai, when Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments, he said, do not touch anyone who touches the mountain will be killed. Do you remember that? Uh, even at the tabernacle in Numbers chapter 1, he says, if anyone who is not a priest comes to the tabernacle, they shall be put to death. God was not an approachable God. Because of his holiness and because of our sin. And this is fantastic, incredible language now. Because now you are no longer banished on the outer courts. 
past the tent. You are no longer banished from the family of God. You are no longer cut off. We sang that song across the great divide, right? There is no divide anymore. In fact, Jesus invites you to come boldly before his throne of grace. Jesus welcomes you. Why are you wallowing in guilt? He welcomes you. You have, not only do you have access to the king, you're supposed to be there. Amen. Amen. It's not a throne of judgment. It's throne of grace. And notice he says here, verse 16, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's not just that uh, it says here that we may receive mercy. That is the confidence, brothers and sisters, you have a confidence if you know Christ, that he will always take you back. And when you meet with him, there was only going to be mercy if you repent, if you but repent and confess. To help in time of need, that means, the, that means right now, the day of salvation is now. Turn to him now. Stop wallowing in your guilt because Jesus welcomes you. I asked that brother who sinned in college, I asked him, did you confess? And he said, yes. And I asked him, did you repent? He said, yes. I said, will you ever do it again? He said, no. I said, then it's over. Go to God. If it's good enough, if Christ's sacrifice is good enough for God the Father, surely it should be more than good enough for you. Why are you killing yourself? Why are you staying in the mud? It's over, Christian. Draw near to him now. Get out of that slew of despond. Stop wallowing in your guilt because Jesus intercedes for you. Stop wallowing in your guilt because Jesus understands you. Stop wallowing in your guilt because Jesus welcomes you. Let's celebrate our communion with Christ for the free access to the throne room of grace he has provided. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible, incredible thought that we can be ushered into your presence at any time because your son went into the heavens. And help us to dwell on this truth. Help us to dwell on what you have done. We pray, Father, that uh, we would cherish the sweet time and contemplate what the Son of Man did in the garden, on the cross, through his holy life. Thank you for paying for our sins. We praise your holy name. Amen.